You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we're reading this evening in Philippians chapter 3. It's on page 1180 if you're using the church Bible. And uh, if that gives any of you a sense of deja vu, you know, when you think something has happened to my life, I was here two months ago, uh, let me uh, just say to you that this is not so much the end of the series on Philippians, which ended a number of weeks ago, uh, not so much the end, but an appendix to that series. And uh, it arises uh, because one of our beloved members, who I don't think is actually here tonight, uh, said to me, it's the way life is, isn't it, uh, said to me, why did I skip over Philippians 3.10 to 11 when we were working our way through Philippians 3? Uh, probably the answer was it was already 7.20, um, and uh, I didn't plan to return to Philippians 3.10 and 11. Um, but when I mentioned this to someone else, they said, you did skip over Philippians 3, 10 to 11, and this is the explanation why the text tonight is, you've worked it out, Philippians 3, 10 to 11. And uh, I'm going to read the passage from uh, the New English Bible. Um, I, had to, I had to find my New English Bible. If you're under 50, You've probably never seen a new English Bible. Uh, it came out in the 1960s um, and was completed um, in the 19, about 1970. Uh, in fact, I think exactly 1970, uh, I was a theological student, uh, and since we'd all become whiz kids at the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, we used to rather loftily say about the New English Bible that it was not really new. The New Testament part had been published years before. Some of it wasn't really English, and parts of it were not really the Bible. And in some ways, all of those three statements were true um, because especially of the Old Testament scholars who had translated the Old Testament Scriptures and in a good number of places, fiddled around with it, uh, preferring uh, Ugaritic language to the text that had come down to us through the years. However, however, I've always loved Philippians 3, 10 and 11 in the New English Bible. And so, for sentimental reasons, I wanted to read it to you. So, we're going to read in Philippians chapter 3 and from the beginning. To repeat what I have written to you before is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of those dogs and their malpractices. Beware of those who insist on mutilation, circumcision, I will not call it. We are the circumcised, we whose worship is spiritual, whose pride is in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in anything external. 
Not that I am without grounds myself, even for confidence of that kind. If anyone thinks to base his claims on externals, I could make a stronger case for myself. Circumcised on my eighth day, Israelite by race, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born and bred, in my attitude to the law, a Pharisee, in pious zeal, a persecutor of the church, in legal rectitude, faultless. But all such assets I have written off because of Christ. I would say more. I count everything sheer loss because all is far outweighed by the gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I did in fact lose everything. I count it so much garbage for the sake of gaining Christ and finding myself incorporate in Him with no righteousness of my own, no legal rectitude, but the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ given by God in response to faith. All I care for is to know Christ, to experience the power of His resurrection, and to share His sufferings in growing conformity with His death, if only I may finally arrive at the resurrection from the dead. It's not to be thought that I've already achieved all this. I've not yet reached perfection, but I press on hoping to take hold of that for which Christ once took hold of me. My friends, I do not reckon myself to have got hold of it yet. All I can say is this, forgetting what is behind me and reaching out for that which lies ahead, I press towards the goal to win the prize, which is God's call to the life above in Christ Jesus. Let us then keep to this way of thinking those of us who are mature. I don't know if they taught you in primary school when you were learning church history about the Picts and the Scots and Strathclyde and Caledonia, and eventually you got to Mary, Queen of Scots, that she had once said that if they were to rip me open and examine my heart, they would find written on it the one word, Calais. It was an expression, a double expression, really, both of her Frenchness and of her commitment to Roman Catholicism. I think if you were able to do the same thing to the Apostle Paul, you would probably find written there Philippians 3, 10, and 11. All I care for is to know Christ, to experience the power of His resurrection, share His sufferings, be conformed to His death, and arrive at the resurrection from the dead. I wrote down some words that David used in the sermon this morning to make sure I could quote him precisely and exactly. He said, nothing compares with knowing Christ. Nothing compares with knowing Christ. And this is a perfect summary, isn't it, of these verses we've just read. Uh, this is what Paul is saying as he looks back on his past. It's what he's looking forwards to in the future. It characterizes his passion in the present. All he cares for, as the New English Bible puts it, 
is to know Christ. And he's been emphasizing this in many ways throughout this whole letter. Always an ambitious man. He was wired for ambition. He gives us a hint of that at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, uh, choosing the most rigorous sect of Judaism uh, in zeal, persecuting the church, a driven man, twisted, yes, antagonistic to Christ, yes, and ambitious, yes. And when he comes to faith in Jesus Christ, much changes the passion to persecute the church changes. He loves the church. The desire to destroy Christ changes. And now he wants to exalt Christ Jesus as his Lord. And yes, the ambition changes. He is the same man, but now the ambition has been both cleansed and redirected, and his ambition is entirely taken up in everything he does. It doesn't uh, matter what he does, whether he's making tents, whether he's preaching in the synagogues or at the street corners or writing his letters or visiting homes, as he says to the Ephesian elders he did frequently. There is one thing that has become the master ambition of his life, and the master ambition is Jesus Christ. All I care for is to know Christ. Great word to have written in your heart. Great word to have in your mind when, for example, you may be demeaned as a Christian believer. All I care for is to know Christ. Great word to have in your thinking if you have success and joy and fulfillment of your aspirations and desires. All I care for here still is to know Christ. And in these verses, he's, he's as it were, unpacking what this means. It's pretty fascinating to me that in verse 15, isn't it, let us then keep to this way of thinking, those of us who are mature, that this for the Apostle Paul is the quintessential hallmark of Christian maturity. We can mistake other things, actually, for that. Uh, there are people who, who think that because they can argue you into the ground as Christians, they are mature, or they must be mature because they hold positions in the church, or because their doctrinal understanding is advanced far beyond the people they know best. But Paul doesn't regard any of these things as the ultimate hallmark of maturity, the ultimate hallmark of maturity is that at the end of the day, in all the things you care about, what you care about in them and through them is Jesus Christ. This is the, this is the measure of how tall you have really grown as a Christian. That, uh, for example, the zeal that invaded your life, if you had a, had a pretty marked experience of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and you found your life redirected in a, in a pretty dramatic way, 
then you remember in those days all you cared about was to know Christ. took you maybe some time. I remember it took me a year after I was converted to kind of find my land legs again. Everything that had really mattered to me before mattered not a whit now, even though some of it was worthy. And we have to learn to rebalance. Christ doesn't take us out of the world, but to live in the world for His glory. But then you see, when we rebalance, it's very easy, isn't it, to to regard that rebalancing as maturity and the dimming of the light and the, the slow burning down of the passion and the slight embarrassment when we meet new Christians who are all agog with their newfound faith in Jesus Christ, and that slight touch of cynicism that sets into some people, well, you just wait and see, and then you'll become ordinary and normal like the rest of us, tepid like the rest of us, not the Apostle Paul. Indeed, he goes so far as to say, you'll notice, not only is this a mark of maturity, but he says, if, if, you, if you have any other way of thinking, then, then God will teach you. One way or another, God will teach you. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not rocket science. It's not, it's not high-level modal logic. If, in a sense, all that the Father cares about with the Spirit is Jesus Christ, how can he possibly rest content until all of his children say, and Father, all we care about too is Jesus Christ. He is our ambition. So, here's a marvelous transformation. The man doesn't cease to be ambitious because he's become a Christian. What a mistake that sometimes has been in the way young Christians have been misinstructed but that ambition has been cleansed, uh, regenerated, if you will, transformed, redirected. Uh, it's, the same, it's the same personality, and yet it's been, from one point of view, deconstructed and then reconstructed, identifiably the same individual with some of the same characteristics. He's still Saul of Tarsus, but now he's Christ Saul of Tarsus. You know what the best-selling classical record was? CD, forgive me for appealing only to those of you who appreciate vinyl, last year, it was Alan Jones' recording of One Voice, where Alan Jones Sr. sings with the voice from old recordings, presumably remastered, digitized, whatever these magic people do with them now. And the 14-year-old boy, and what is he now, 40-something-year-old man singing together. Are these two different people? Well, they're not two different people, but you see the voice has been radically changed. And it's like this with the Apostle Paul, ambitious to destroy Christ. Now he is ambitious to know Christ. And this is the first thing to notice. 
But the most important thing in the world is knowing the Lord. And how Jeremiah puts it in these great words in Jeremiah 9, don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man in his strength or the rich man in his riches, but let him who boasts. Notice he doesn't say, don't boast. He says, don't boast in these things. Let him who boasts, and Paul uses the same words, boast in the Lord. This is the heart of the new covenant according to Jeremiah. In that day, they'll know me. This is, this is, in a sense, Jesus' definition of salvation and eternal life. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent ask people, what's eternal life? They might say, well, it's forgiveness of sins, been given a new heart, let Jesus into my heart, became a Christian, made my decision for Jesus, any of these things. But all of those things are just means to a, to a greater end. The reason God has dealt with our sins on the cross of Calvary is not just that we should be forgiven, but that we should enjoy that for which non-forgiveness disqualifies us, that we should come to know Him, that we should come in that knowledge of Him to, to love Him. Paul has a very interesting way of putting it to Galatians. He, 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 he speaks about becoming a Christian, and he says, um, before I came to know God, and you can, almost, you can almost see his brain kind of, you know, like hanging in the air. Before I came to know God, or rather to be known by God. You, you see the difference? There's a knowledge in which I am the knower and the master of my subject. Most of the things you study in university are like that. You are the knower and you are the master of the subject. But the knowledge of God is not like that knowledge. The knowledge of God is that kind of knowledge of Him that so opens you up that you know that He has come to know you. Just like you remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus kind of turns around what you would expect Him to say, when he, when he addresses those who are boasting in what they've done, say, Lord, Lord, I've done all these things in your name, and he says to them, well, let me put it this way. He doesn't say to them, depart from me, you never knew me. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. See, there is a kind, you experience this, don't you? There is a kind of knowledge of, of someone where, where you close yourself down, you want to master them. You don't want them to get to know you. But that's uh, not possible with the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord that Paul is speaking about here is the knowledge of one who knows that the one he knows knows him better than he knows himself because he has abandoned himself entirely to him. And this is what Paul means when he says here, all I really care about 
is knowing Jesus Christ. And everything that surrounds that statement gives us an indication of how deep that knowledge was, uh, the kind of language he uses. He speaks about the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. And he's, 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 he's using language to, to, as it were, elevate our understanding of how marvelous this is. You know, if one, one would need to understand the context for someone saying this, but Paul was very hyper. And he's very hyper here that there are there are things and people we know, and it, that is really a wonderful privilege, but there is there's something beyond privilege in knowing Christ, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You can see how that would transform somebody, wouldn't you? You'd see how that would be a defense for us if we felt our, ourselves minimized, or as the older writers used to say in a delightful verb, minified, minified, you know, magnified, minified. You experience that as a Christian in your place of work, in the street, where you are socially, where you study, perhaps even in your family. But to be able to to be able to possess the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I mean, you don't, that doesn't happen without your gaze so being fixed on Him that you see how marvelous He is. That doesn't come, dear friends, from inside me. That does, that's not the result of me saying, you know, I, I, I need to feel better about Jesus. That comes from seeing just how great Jesus really is. You know, they used to say about Jonathan Edwards, the great American philosopher, theologian, people today still think he may have been the greatest mind that ever walked the North American continent. Just in parenthesis, he was actually British because he lived before the Revolutionary War, but that's beside the point. They used to say such was his mind that he could take a thought and hold it up to the light like a, like a diamond and then just slowly turn it round and, and focus on every facet. Wouldn't you like to have a mind like that? You know? I mean, you, dear ones, isn't it true that we think about Jesus and our brain goes somewhere else? We try to pray and... And there's a kind of, actually, the medievals knew about this, uh, especially the monks. There's a, there's a disease of the mind. It's a kind of sloth of the mind. And there's a kind of curtain comes down. And either we blank out or we, we can't break through and, and really, really focus down on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And at the end of the day, actually, it's not a matter of my IQ. It's a matter of, it's a matter of my heart and my sin because actually I'm able to focus with great zeal for extraordinary amounts of time 
on some of the most trivial incidents in the world. Absolutely riveted. So, so what, is, what is going to help me here? Well, this is why Paul writes his letters. This is why at the end of the day, he takes every congregation to whom he writes, as it were, sometimes by the scruff of the neck, and he pulls them together, and he holds them up, and he says, see how great Jesus is. And he's just done that in Philippians, doesn't he? Philippians 2, 5 to 11, he says, see how great Jesus is. So, this is not something that's worked up in us, although we need to engage in the activity. This is the reality of Christ revealed to us as our minds are illumined by the Holy Spirit as we read the pages of Scripture, and He seems to walk off the pages in His greatness and His grandeur. Didn't you get a sense of that when David was reading in Revelation 4 and 5 this morning? Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and I looked, and there was a lamb standing as though had been slain. So, this is His ambition the knowledge of Christ, and the way in which he speaks about it reveals the, the depth of his meditation on Christ, but it also reveals, in a sense, the degree of his devotion to Christ, because there's a, there's a slightly anomalous way of speaking here. You know that Paul uses the word kurios for Lord, kurios. And that's the word that, w- that he would have found in his Greek translation of the Old Testament as the translation of the, the divine name Yahweh, the most sacred name, the name that the Jewish people still today never pronounce. So, that even will cannot absolutely guarantee to us how Yahweh is pronounced. Nobody knows because nobody in the Jewish tradition has pronounced it for millennia. And so, if you hear a Jew read the Old Testament Scriptures in Hebrew, they'll substitute the word Adonai for the word Yahweh, because it's the holy name, and it's translated kurios in the New Testament. So, usually when Jesus is described as Lord, it's got nothing whatsoever to do with how I feel about Him, nothing whatsoever. He is Lord no matter what I feel about Him. I may hate Him, but He is still Lord. The New Testament, when it says Jesus is Lord, is saying Jesus is Yahweh. That's what it's saying. But here's one of those few occasions in the New Testament where Paul is not simply ascribing deity to Jesus. He is saying, He is my Lord. He is my Lord. It's, a, it's an expression of devotion, isn't it? He is my Lord. He reigns over my life. He rules over everything. And this, of course, only, only begins to permeate through my life when I discover what it really means that He is Lord. So, here we've got the focus of Paul's ambition, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
But it's within this context, he goes on to speak about the implications of this ambition. What does it look like to know Jesus Christ? Well, he he spells it out. Notice what he says here. He says, all I care for is to know Christ and to share the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, become like Him in His death, and finally arrive at the resurrection. Those of you who love literature, probably all scientists here, but you can be a scientist and love literature, uh, you know the figure of speech called chiasm. You know where the language that's used crosses over. And this is a, this is a chiasm. Uh, he, Hebrew minds loved chiasms, absolutely loved chiasms. Notice how it works. He says, I want to know the risen Christ. And he says, I want to share in his sufferings. And then you see he he begins there, I want to become like him in his death. And then he's back where he began. I want to share somehow in the resurrection from the dead. And it's actually a it's a description of our experience of Jesus. Uh, when we come to know Jesus, of course, we know Him as the risen Jesus. Did you notice, I think it was Will who prayed earlier on that we would be conformed to the image of God's Son, Romans eight twenty nine. And we often think of that as there and then, don't we? That is going to be delightful there and then. But Paul understands if that's going to be true there and then, it is also going to be true here and now. And the way in which the Lord conforms us to the likeness of Jesus Christ is by using exactly the same mold that He used to conform Jesus to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is to say, by pressing his life into a pattern of dying and rising, of death and resurrection. And this is just all over Paul's letters. Once you see it, you see it in all of his letters virtually. That the Christian life as a whole, and this is how we're to understand what it means to go on progressing in our knowledge of Christ, it means that the whole of our life is going to be molded, as it were, by the invisible hands of God into a particular shape, the shape of the the dying of Jesus and the rising of Jesus. Second Corinthians 4, he talks about this, doesn't he? So, I'm always carrying about in my body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be manifested in my body. So then, he says, death is at work in me in order that life might be at work in others. It is one of the great clues to understanding how God works in our lives, that if He's going to make us like Christ, then He's going to do that by bending our lives into the shape of cross and resurrection. Remember how C.S. Lewis puts it? He says, nothing that refuses to die can never be raised from the dead. 
And that's true of our Christian lives. It's true internally, and it's also true externally. My own view, probably the greatest exposition of this, uh, Calvin is often mentioned in our morning services, not so often in our evening services, but probably the greatest exposition of this whole history of Christian literature is in the third book of Calvin's Institutes, where he speaks, if you'll forgive me a little Latin, about mortificatio et vivificatio interna et externa. And you don't need much Latin, any Latin really, to understand what he's saying. He is saying there is a mortification and a vivification, a dying and a rising in the Christian life that is both internal and external. It's internal in this sense, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Romans chapter 6, those who have been baptized, been baptized into His death, and we share in the likeness of His resurrection. But it's also true externally. We share in His sufferings, in His afflictions. Paul says, I, I, I feel as though I'm filling up what still needs to be filled up in me of the afflictions of Jesus Christ. Because he understands, that's the end of Colossians 1, because he understands that if that's the, if that's the raw material God used to make Jesus the person He made Jesus, He's not going to be able to make me like Jesus using any other instruments, is he? Paul, of course, probably learned this, as I think we saw when we were studying Philippians 3 earlier on from Stephen. External mortification, external vivification, death, you could write Stephen into the margin of your Bible at 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 12. Death works in me. Life works in others. And, you know, we, we, if you're like me, you want to say, measure it for me. How much of this have I got to go through? Well, that's all in God's hands, isn't it? Um, we're individuals. He doesn't clone us. He doesn't say, okay, Ferguson, that's going to be about, you know, boy, we'll need tons of the stuff for him. And uh, David Robertson, well, maybe not so much. No, no. This is, this is not something we can, we can say to him. Uh, we, we, we can't say to Jesus, like the man who asked the question that led to the parable of the Good Samaritan, just tell me how much. Tell me who my neighbor is. Just give me limits on it, Jesus, and then I'll be able to work it out for myself, and I know how much of it I'll go through and how much of it I don't need to go through. No, no, you see, Paul has said, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's, it's entirely in His hands. And I don't understand why He does it in such different ways any more than you do. Um... You know, I, I, I read the end of, of Paul's second letter to Timothy, his last letter, and I think, why did, it, why did this great man have to end this way? 
I mean, you almost want to add on, you know, like, like uh, an epitaph on his gravestone. He deserved better than this. Uh, but he'd, he, he'd lost all interest in what he deserved. All he wanted was to know Christ. And the fact of the matter is, isn't this true, that as, as we experience not least this external mortification and vivification, affliction and, and deliverance, that we find ourselves drawn nearer to Christ. Don't, don't you experience that? I mean, don't you experience when you go down into the dark? Um, Lord, is this what you went through for me and more? And you see, it draws you, as you respond to it in faith, not as you respond to it in an angry, why is this happening to me, but in a faith-filled, Lord, why is this happening to me? Ah, my child, it's to, it's to draw you nearer to me. It's so that, so that the Spirit can use the raw materials of these painful providences to to grind down your rough edges and, and make you more and more like me. And this is what Paul sees as part of really growing in the knowledge of Christ. So, there's a focus to his ambition. There are these implications of his ambition. And notice what the result of this ambition is. What, what happens when it's true of me? All I really care about is to know Christ. Well, he says, it changes my view of the past to begin with. Notice what he says, I forget everything that's behind. Now, of course, you know, unless you're on some new drug, you can't forget everything that's behind. But you see, this is a, this is a choice he's making. It's a choice he's making about two things, I think. One is about his achievements. Forget about them, he says. They're they're garbage. But the other, I suspect, might well be the things that haunt him. He, he doesn't talk much about this, does he? But he gives us some principal indications that he knew what it was to have all hell let loose against him because of his past. I don't, my dear friend, I don't care who you are, you do not have a past like Saul of Tarsus. You don't. He is the one man in all history who probably came nearest, humanly speaking, to absolutely destroying the Christian church. He was involved in the murder of men and women because he hated Christ so much. You don't think for a moment that after his Damascus road, he had a ho-hum attitude to that, do you? Well, I'm a Christian now. That's what the devil would use. Don't you remember? I'm forgetting what lies behind. It's maybe just as well because I've just spotted that the person who spoke to me is really here tonight. And then it changes his attitude to the present. By comparison, he says, I count everything as garbage. 
It's not that everything is garbage. It's by comparison. That's where the balance of our Christian living comes. It's not that we despise the world. We actually, in many ways, we love the world, don't we? We really do love the world. I think Christians love the world in the right sense more than anybody else does, more than the save the whales people do. Because because our eyes, something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. This is a wonderful world, and we love it. But by comparison with Christ, all that we, all that we accomplish and amass, it's garbage, really, when you really love Christ. And it changes our view of the future. He says, I'm looking forward to the the future. He says, when the day comes right at the end of the chapter, when He will transfigure this body that belongs to our humble state and give it a form like that of His own resplendent body, save to sin no more. All the ransomed church of God, save to sin no more. Obedience easy loving each other. I mean, loving these odd people that live at the opposite side of the church from you, loving them with a pure heart, being glad to be in their presence, finding it easy to love and serve and praise Jesus. Remember many years ago, 1980s, I used to keep an old golf driver in the, in the boot of my car, trunk of my car, in Philadelphia. Occasionally, I'd pass this driving range and, you know, I'd think, need to get some practice. And one day, I'm, you know, you know, if you want to go crazy, go to one of these driving ranges and you just click, click, bang, click, click, bang. And I'm banging the balls away. I was young and supple in those days. And they're flying away. And this old boy in the next booth, he turns to me, son, he says, try this one. And he pulls out like this kind of absolutely state-of-the-art new driver costing a week's salary. Try that. No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm okay with this. No, he says, son, try it. So, I tried it. Ooh, ooh. I thought this is the easiest game in the world if you've got this driver. And I thought of the resurrection. I thought this old thing, it's like my old driver. I bought it for five quid in a jumble sale somewhere. But this 300-pound titanium, specially crafted supersonic shaft, grip, grip that will transform your life, head that will create a club head speed that will bang the ball away another 50 yards without any extra effort on your part. I thought to myself, I wonder if this is what it's like in the resurrection. Not the golf, you understand. <laughs> oh, you never know. Not the golf. But to go through that transformation, when we struggle, when we get down, we love the Lord Jesus, but we still struggle. And sometimes the, the curtain seems to come down and the days are long or the nights are longer. And we think, Lord, what, what, what's, why? I don't seem to be accomplishing very much. And then we look forward to that day. What a day that will be. 
the older you get, that day seems to get better and better, doesn't it? When you see dear ones going ahead of you, when you meet up with somebody you haven't seen for five years, and you think, my, they've, they've been living in a parallel universe. I used to see them almost every single day, but the last five years we've been living in a parallel. I wish I could catch up with them. And that's, you know, that's just the trimmings. Christ. I mean, what are those seraphim actually like? What are those cherubim really like? What's an archangel really like? Or even an angel surrounding the throne and these elders and all the ransomed church of God praising Him without sin and without end, and never a moment of boredom. Well, that's what it means to have Jesus Christ as your ambition, and to keep your eyes fixed on Him. You know, most parents of kind of memorable, moving experiences in family life. One of the most memorable experiences I have in our family is one. We have three boys and a girl. And um, I remember one Sunday night at the end of a Sunday evening service, just like this, the sermon was on Jesus calling Peter out of the boat to walk on the water towards him. And Peter taking his eyes off Jesus and sinking. And at the end of the service, I spoke to one of our boys, so it wasn't our daughter, one of our boys, and there were little tears, I think he was about eight or nine, little tears just running down his face. I said, I said what's, what, what's wrong? Do you know what he said? He said, I think I've taken my eyes off Jesus. I think I've taken my eyes off Jesus. You know, in some ways, since then, so many years ago, I thought, I think that's one of the most profound things I've probably ever heard in my life, because it gets to the very heart of where we go wrong, taking my eyes off Jesus. Well, Paul is saying, let this help you get your eyes back on Jesus and call Him your Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray that these words that we seek, if poorly, to explain to each other and hold up before each other, we pray that more and more they may be written into our hearts and be wonderfully true for us, that all we care about is to know Christ Jesus and the surpassing greatness of that knowledge and to love Him, serve Him as our Lord, become more and more like Him through all the providential experiences of life until one day we see Him face to face and will never be unlike Him or act unlike Him ever again. Oh, make this true for all of us here tonight, we pray in His name. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.